everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the Path 11 podcast. I am your host, April Hanna, and I'm really excited about our show today. We are going to be talking about the chakras, which is one of my favorite topics to talk about and learn about. And our guest today is Michelle Fondin. She is the author of The Wheel of Healing with Ayurveda, An Easy Guide to a Healthy Lifestyle, and Help, I Think My Loved One is an Alcoholic, A Survival Guide for Lovers, Family, and Friends. She is also the author of the upcoming books, Enlightened Medicine, Your Power to Get Well Now, and the book that we're going to talk about today that I got a chance to read is Chakra Healing for Vibrant Energy. Michelle writes for Chopra.com and teaches yoga, meditation, and Ayurvedic lifestyle. She holds a Vedic master certificate and has taught in seminars with Deepak Chopra and David Simon. Michelle speaks about health, wellness, and integrative medicine, as well as spirituality and healing. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you so much, April. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you and um, specifically just about the way that your book really lays out um, each chakra and how a person can really learn about them, learn about the blockages, also learn about um, how they can begin to clear them and all of the different components that each chakra can hold. So this is going to be a great conversation. I can feel it already. <laughs> and um, and I really found it fascinating and love in some ways when people get a chance to tell their story about a physical ailment that they had. And then they really went into some deep spiritual work to be able to heal that. And I know in reading your book that one of the, um, one of the things that prompted this was you being diagnosed with thyroid cancer. So I was wondering if you could educate our audience and tell them a little bit about your path and how you came to write this book. Yeah, definitely. So I thought that I was living a relatively healthy life and I thought that, you know, I was, I was on, I was 28 years old when I was diagnosed with that thyroid cancer. And you know, like most 28 year olds, you don't think a whole lot about your health. I mean, you do, you go to the gym and you eat pretty, you think you're eating pretty healthy. And so I was totally blindsided by that diagnosis. And I had always been interested in whole health, holistic healing, and I had been practicing yoga since I was 18, but I had no notion about the chakras and I had no notion about how alternative health practices could integrate into Western medicine. So I was, I got the diagnosis and because I had two small children, my family really urged me to do the traditional treatments, which were surgery and radioactive iodine therapy for the thyroid cancer. But I knew I couldn't stop there because if I stopped there, then I was like, I had this notion in the back of my head that if I didn't get to the root cause of the problem, the cancer would come back. So I just, I got like tons and tons of books from the library. Um, and one of which had something about the chakras inside. And I was super intrigued because I had never heard of the concept before, but the more I read about it, I began delving into the fifth chakra, which is the area of the throat where the thyroid is. And a lot of people don't even know where the thyroid is. It, it's actually at the base of the throat, kind of where your collarbone is. And it's a, it's a vital organ that regulates your metabolism and a lot of other functions. And so I, when I looked back at my life, I realized that throughout my entire childhood, throughout my entire life, I had always had some sort of ailment in the throat. And I grew up with tonsillitis and strep throat like chronically. And when I was 17, I had an abscess in the throat that had to be surgically opened um, because of mononucleosis. And then the thyroid cancer at 28, and I was like, whoa, there's got to be something here. So 
looking into the fifth chakra really helped me to begin the exploration as to why I kept getting sick in this one specific area of my body. And the throat chakra, from what I have learned and studied, um, is the chakra that is really um, focused on our communication for our truth or speaking our truth. And sometimes if people are holding their truth back or maybe stuffing feelings, emotions, not communicating, um, that there could be um, some vibrational changes or blockages in the chakra. And also I've heard that people who might be very vocal um, and <laughs> maybe yellers and, you know, constantly telling it like it is and kind of not really keeping their mouth shuts per se, but um, that the chakra can almost be too exacerbated and can also be out of balance. Is that correct? Yeah, that's a really good description. So yeah, the, the fifth chakra is definitely about speaking your truth and it's, it's very much linked to our heart chakra in the way that we often inside of our hearts, even though we may not be cognizant, we know what our inner truth is and we don't always have the bravery to be able to speak our inner truth. And what's right and wrong for us and how we can express ourselves to communicate to others. Like, here's what I believe and here's what resides within my heart. And here's me really. And so when we go from our heart space, then we are actually speaking our inner truth. And so the people that can't speak their truth usually grow up in dysfunctional households or they're naturally really shy or introverted or they've been trained through childhood. And again, a lot of this comes with maybe having alcoholic parents or parents that were abusive or authoritarian or disciplinarian or being bullied as a kid where you become a people pleaser. And so you often see fifth chakra blockages in, a, in people pleasers who they say things that are not necessarily truth, but just to keep the status quo and not make waves. And um, you mentioned another great point that we can either be deficient in a specific chakra, deficient meaning there's not enough energy flowing there. So um, in my case, because of the tumor and the abscess, like that was showing blockages, that was showing restriction. And then on the other flip side, you can have someone who has excessive energy, but it's unbounded energy. And unbounded excessive energy can be just as dangerous as constricted energy. So yeah, there are two ends of that spectrum. Yeah. And and what would you maybe say to some of the people um, who really aren't quite getting this mind-body connection? And some people I know have said to me, like, well, April, not everything, you know, not every time you get sick or if there's an illness in somebody that it always has to do with something emotional. Like, can it just be something medical um, and something off within in the body? And I kind of drive people nuts because I'm always like, there's always a connection. They're like, <laughs> like no, there's not always a connection. Maybe it's just simply a sore throat, <laughs> yeah. you know? Um, so how do you handle that question or or if you hear um, well, that with people. Yeah, from from my experience in Ayurvedic medicine, because I'm an Ayurvedic um, practitioner. So the one thing that I found is that 90% of the time, you can always find that emotional connection. You can always find um, something that's going on in your life that you've either suppressed or something from your past or something from your present or um, just not living a balanced life. 
that contributes toward your illness or your ailment. So yeah, I, I find about 90% of the time that's the case. There is another 10% that it's really difficult to explain or understand. Now, whatever your beliefs are, I'm going to throw something out there that may sound a little crazy, but you know, it could be karma. And in Indian medicine, the belief is that you carry your past karma from past lives into this life. So it just may be paying off a karmic debt. That could be one. Another thing is just like we come from divine source. Now, again, whatever your beliefs happen to be, we are a part of this universe. We're an integral part of the universe. So we come from, whether you call it mother nature, God, spirit, we come from divine source. So sometimes divine source is just expressing itself through you. And in those very small cases, sometimes it's really difficult, again, to find that emotional or spiritual or lifestyle connection. But in 90% of the cases, I've found that that's true. You know, that like, for example, like if a child falls ill and they're like one year old, yeah, it's really hard to explain that emotional connection. You know, that could be karmic, that could be, you know, divine, um, a divine intervention for the parents to awaken in a certain way, but it may not be directly to that child getting sick for emotional reasons. Right. And, but that explanation, like what you said with past Mm -hmm. karma, you know, and somebody that is so young in life, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and being diagnosed with something, say at one years old, that kind of makes sense. If somebody would like to carry that belief that maybe we do carry karma from past lives, you know, because, because it is very hard and difficult to Mm -hmm. wrap your mind around uh, a young child that barely has had any experience on this earth, um, you know, falling ill or, or having those problems, you know? Mm -hmm. Exactly. So I almost fell off my chair when I was reading in the beginning of the book that we have 88,000 chakras. So, um, can you explain that a little bit more? Cause I know, and then you talked about how, you know, we have the main seven, which mm-hmm. I, I'm sure a lot of our listeners, we've talked to a couple of people about, um, chakras on our show. Um, mm-hmm. but so some people might be familiar with the main seven and if mm-hmm. they're not, you and I will go over those a little bit later, um, in the podcast, but I've always known that there were the seven. I've also mm-hmm. heard that we have chakras in the palms of our, our eyes, our feet, Um, and I believe that I've also have studied and read that the chakras can also, um, extend out of the back body and that there's Mm -hmm. also one atop on top of the crown chakra as well. Mm -hmm. But where are these 88,000? How do you, so, so (laughs) that, um, that number was found in, um, one of the readings of the tantric texts. And I believe that that it's more indicative of energy points that are very minute. So um, in Ayurveda, they call these marma points. And marma points are, think of like acupressure meridians or acupressure points. And so then the study of the, these minute pressure or energy center points are points of healing. And that's more useful for, Um, a healer of the energy body that they can work on those specific, what they call in Ayurveda marma points. So really that's what it is more about. So I don't Uh, know if you want to, 
Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't I don't want to, I don't know if you want to call it like in I think we're most in the Western world familiar with like acupressure or acupuncture points. Yeah. Um, yeah, or meridians. And so I think you can tie those into that in that it's a very small point in the body that um again practitioners of energy medicine could work on. Yeah, that make now that makes sense to me because now I have a visual. And yeah. um, if our listeners aren't sure uh, what you might be talking about, you know, if they Googled um, the energy meridian points in the body or acupuncture points, usually there's a lot of images you could find on Google that will actually show you those lines and the different meridians that run down the entire body, mm-hmm. both front and back. It's yeah, amazing. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I was hoping that you could talk about a little bit about. Um, and this was new information to me as well, is you were talking about the three psychic forces of the mind. Mm-hmm. And this was more in, um, just trying to pull up my con- my comment here, my notes. Um, that was, you were, I, I got a lot of education out of the yoga sutras that you were talking about. Mm-hmm. And I found this part to be really interesting because I think all of us are trying to figure out how do we master our minds here? So <laughs> I would love to hear more about this because this is new information for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you could go into talking a little bit about that and then the three, are they pronounced gunas? The three gunas, correct. The yep. three gunas. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So can you take us through that? Yeah. So in Indian philosophy, which is, yeah, the gunas are actually tied to the yoga sutras and they're also integrated into Ayurveda. So the yoga sutras in the, um, in Ayurvedic medicine, both come from an ancient text called the Vedic text, V-E-D-I-C. The word Veda means science or knowledge. So they both emanate. And the explanation of these in both Ayurveda, the doshas, which I do talk about, and the gunas, it explains to us the dynamic forces of life and what we have to overcome to overcome suffering. That's really the essence of this is how do we overcome suffering? So in Indian philosophy, it says that there is universal force called Purusha. That's it was it's like unmanifested energy. You can call it God spirit. That's Purusha. Then Prakriti is nature that emanates from universal force. And Prakriti, this nature manifests itself in the three gunas or these psychic forces and psychic. Don't think of psychic as when we say, think of psychic, we think of like, Oh, telling the future, foreseeing the future. This is just about like mind body connection forces, if you will. And the first one is called sattva in sattva. It means purity. So sattva or a sattvic experience or sattva in a person is anything that's pure energy, pure prana, Purity meaning whole, like whole foods. Like if you eat an apple that's fresh and organic and you just pick it off the tree and it hasn't been treated with any pesticides, herbicides, you know, the sun has grown it naturally. It's not in a, you know, in, um, what do you call those in a greenhouse? So it's got artificial light. You've got the real sun on that tree and you pick that apple and you take a bite that's a sattvic experience, meaning that it's pure, it's unadulterated, it's it's great. A baby, when babies are born, babies are very sattvic because they're pure. They haven't been polluted by our earth yet. <laughs> um, 
And then, so that's purity, that's sattva. And when we move toward experiences, food, all of that, it's important to think of a sattvic experience or or trying toward truthfulness, for example, that's sattva. Then we move into rajas. And rajas can mean a period in life. And rajas is all about activity and movement and like moving toward goals and going to work in the morning. Um, that's rajas and rajas in food, for example, is like hot, spicy food that, you know, hot, spicy food gets you moving a little bit or caffeine is, is rajasic in nature. And then there is tamas, which is inertia decay. So all of these three forces are the dynamics of life. And if you think about it, they're even in the life cycles. So in childhood, it's considered to be um, a time of purity and growth. And then we move into rajasic period, which is the longest period in our life, which is our time of work, really. It's our time of, you know, procreation, raising families and work and accomplishments and getting things done. And then Tamas is just, you know, older age, (laughs) you know, um, the body is kind of in that phase of breaking itself down to get ready to pass on to the next realm. So we can always look at these psychic forces, just the dynamics of life. Yeah. Oh God. It's like when you explain it, it's so awesome to, I don't know, just he- hear another concept. And then as you're describing it and what each means, yeah, it just totally mm-hmm. brings you around to the cycle of life of, of birth and living and then death and then birth, mm-hmm. living and death. And then, you know, the yeah. cyclic pattern of it all. Um, great. So how do you, how do those kind of, um, do you work with those within the chakra system? So the, the gunas, just like the Ayurvedic doshas, and I like to use both to describe because they're very similar in nature. Um, each of the chakras has an element that corresponds to, um, the chakra. So let's give an example. So it's not so cerebral. (laughs) Um, it's not so up there. So let's give an example. So the first chakra, the root chakra is governed by the element earth. So when we think about earth, we think about earthiness, like dirt, you dig your hands into the dirt when you're gardening. Um, and then the trees that have their roots into the earth create stability and something solid. So the guna, which is tamas, which is inertia and inertia can be something bad, but inertia can also mean something good. So for example, it's important that you sleep at night and if you don't sleep, then you're going to be sick eventually. So tamas comes in to help you sleep. And the same thing with the earth, you know, you don't know what's going on underneath the earth when roots for plants are helping that plant to grow up and, and the dirt that is decomposing matter, that's all tamas. And the root chakra is all about stability and building, like building a house, (laughs) right? So, um, so that's how they correspond. The, the qualities of tamas and, the root chakra with the earth element, they work together. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Great. Thank you for mm-hmm. making that connection. And and in your book too, you know, our listeners, if they go out and read it, buy it, um, you know, you 
nicely in the beginning of each chakra, you say what element it is, what color it is, and what the mantra and sound is Mm -hmm. um, as well. So it'll be easier if people have the book in front of them to also follow through uh, this with what we're talking about as well. Um, And, you know, I'd like to talk a little bit more about the root chakra, but before we do that, I'd also like to go into Kundalini energy and understanding Mm -hmm. that a little bit more because you spoke about that in the book. And Mm -hmm. I have heard of Kundalini energy. I have a friend that's taking a Kundalini yoga training. I've mm-hmm. spoke to people that said they had a Kundalini awakening. Mm-hmm. Some people have had um, the experience of actually feeling this Kundalini energy in their body. And when you talk to them, it's like a crazy sacred experience. <laughs> and so, and I haven't done much, you know, uh, just reading on it, although uh-huh. I've, I know the word and it's been tossed around a lot in my world. Um, but I wanted to get a better understanding of that. And I, if I'm understanding it correctly too, it can also be the connection to the root chakra as well. Yeah. So, okay. So the philosophy behind the chakras comes from the tantric texts. Kundalini yoga is very much um, linked to the idea of this Kundalini energy, and it all comes from Indian philosophy. So it's neat because Indian philosophy, whether it's talking about medicine, yoga, meditation, science, astrology, whatever it talks about, it's always told through stories. So there's always metaphors and imagery and stories. And so the idea is that there are two serpents, part of a story, that sit at the base of the spine all coiled up. And then they move, they awaken, and they move through. And, you know, I think the best visual is the caduceus sign um, that we see in medicine, with the serpents winding around the middle part. <laughs> and that's really what it, it, it represents. It represents that these, these three channels, they're called the nadis. And we talked about marma points. So the nadis are the circulatory channels within the body. And there are three main ones. In Sanskrit, they're called the ida nadi, which is the left channel, the pingala nadi, which is the right channel, and the shashumna nadi, which is the central channel, which is your spine, which is along the spine. So they all start at the base chakra, and then the energy just awakens and it moves on up. And they awaken as you are opening up and aligning the chakras so that the energy is unblocked. And then it moves up through the spine and through to the crown of the head. Now, these two nadis, the Ida nadi and the Pingala nadi, which also represent yin-yang energy or masculine and feminine energy, they, like, think of the snakes or the serpents, they actually unfold and they alternate as they move up the central nadi, the Shashumna nadi, as they're awakening, which makes it that each of the chakras from number one, the base, through the fifth chakra, they have masculine and feminine energies that dominate. So as these energies awaken and they're opening and aligning the chakras, you do feel that energy moving up. Now, there is um, a physiological basis for this. You're awakening the... um, the spinal fluid that actually sits in concentration at the base of the spine. And as you work through it, through different practices, 
you're allowing that spinal fluid to move up through to the crown of the head. So that's, I mean, there is a physiological basis for this. It's not all just like crazy esoteric stuff. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, If you've ever practiced the root lock in yoga called Mula Bandha, um, when you practice the root lock, which is, you know, um, constricting the area of the perineum and the rectum and holding it, um, you're actually encouraging that spinal fluid to move upward. And so a lot of times there's a combination of things going on. There's not only the emotional and the spiritual, but there's the physical as well. That's helping, helping this energy move upward. So when we're looking to try to balance the chakras or clear them, uh, clear the blocked energy, are we also trying to focus on this kundalini energy moving all the way up and through? It's more that the energy that moves up and through is a natural part of the practices that you'll be doing. I mean, yeah, and some people in meditation might focus on this in their meditative practice. In kundalini yoga, certainly the end goal is the awakening of that kundalini energy. And some of it is done through some pretty intense breathing techniques that are done in conjunction with yoga poses um, to help. I don't want to say force. Force sounds like a not such a good word, but it, it encourages that energy to awaken and move up through these deep breathing practices. And speaking of that, that's one of the things that I really loved about your book as well, is that you incorporated um, affirmations, you incorporated certain breathing techniques that people can use for each uh, chakra, and um, also the different yoga poses as well. And you have, you know, links to your YouTube, where people can actually see it. Uh, Wonderful. This is just such (laughs) a comprehensive book (laughs) in trying to um, balance and heal the chakra system. So this might be a good time for us to go into um, giving our audience a little taste maybe of each chakra. And I was wondering if you could talk about um, maybe starting with the root about what some of the imbalances are um, within the root chakra. So our listeners, as you are explaining each and how to work with the energy of it, that they might be able to tune into themselves and get an idea of where they may need to fine tune um, their, their own chakra system. Yeah, of course. So let's start at the base of the spine, the root chakra muladhara. Um, it sits at the base, the perineum, the rectum, if you're a man, the scrotum, the testicles, the first three vertebrae, and the bladder is also included in the first chakra. And it is our sense of stability and security and having our basic needs met. And so when you feel secure and grounded and you feel fearless and you're okay with uncertainty because you have a sense of security, a feeling of knowing that the money will come in, there'll be food on the table, I'll have a roof over my head, then that chakra can stay open and aligned. But if you're worried, concerned, fearful, anxious, Um, you start to have blockages in that chakra. So, of course, all of those things I just mentioned are imbalances of the root chakra. And um, you could have bladder problems, um, problems with constipation, rectal problems, colon problems, and those are all linked to that base chakra. Then we move up to the second chakra, which is called Svadhisthana. It's our creativity and sexual center. 
And that chakra is linked, of course, to procreation. A lot of people just think it's sex and procreation. And that's not uniquely what it's connected to. It's also connected to creating anything, whether it's baking a cake or doing an art project or um, doing engineering plans for making a new model of a car. So it's all it's a creative type force. And people that might have um, a blocked second chakra, they might experience, of course, fertility problems, um, problems with, um, especially for women, problems with carrying pregnancies to term. They might have repeated miscarriages. Um, they might have ovaries that are blocked or they might have ovarian cysts. Um, for men, they might have problems either with premature ejaculation or low sperm count. Um, and addictions is also a second chakra problem, which if you read anything in the news lately that in America, we have such a huge addiction problem. So that is definitely a second chakra issue. Then moving up to the third chakra, which is the solar plexus, our source of personal power. And this is, um, we talked about the fifth, remember being able to speak your truth, but mm -hmm. the third chakra is personal power, being able to move forward into your personal power. So it's not so much about speaking. It's about action. It's about doing, it's about showing the world who you are through your, your will, your desire, um, your goals, for example. And so a lot of people are also afraid <laughs> to express who they are and move toward their goals and move toward their, their desires. And so imbalances of the third chakra physically could include things like a lot of weight gain in the area of the tummy, like around the navel. Um, they could have acid reflux, a lot of burning sensations because the solar plexus is the sun. If you think about it, it's our fire element. So digestive issues, um, irritable bowel syndrome, things like that, anything colitis or any um, gastrointestinal problems that tend to sit around the area of the navel are also indicative. Um, mid back pain. And I forgot to mention for the second chakra, lower back pain, because the chakras go through the body to the back. And a lot of people forget that they just think like in the front, um, the fourth chakra heart anahata source of love and compassion. This is one of our major chakras in a major way because our heart encompasses it, but also the lungs, the bronchial passages, it is our source of love, giving, receiving, forgiving, compassion. And it is also the segue or the tie-in the, the tie between chakras of matter, which are the first three, and the chakras of spirituality, which are the top three. So it really ties in or ties together matter and spirit. And it's so important to keep your heart healthy for so many reasons. But, but really it's when that heart is open that you're able to access the higher states or the higher chakras fully and be able to live a more enlightened life, but just a more joyous life. So that's the area of the heart. And the fifth chakra we did speak about speaking your truth, being able to verbalize. Um, it is the throat, the thyroid gland, the jaw, the mouth, the tongue, the larynx, um, the teeth. And if you have problems like TMJ, like grinding your teeth or speech impediments 
or throat problems, thyroid problems. Those are all ailments of that fifth chakra. And the sixth chakra, Ajna, third eye, center of intuition. This is um, our clairvoyance, but not only clairvoyance, because that freaks some people out, but being able to envision your life, being able to see into the future, like this is where I want to go with my goals. This is where I'd like to be in 10 years, 15 years. This is where, this is how I would like to see my life develop and unfold. And this is how I project things will be for me in a really positive light and be able to see that. It's not only our physical eyes that we see through in the sixth chakra, but it's our third eye, which of course, as I mentioned, is our center of intuition and that intuitive capability to be able to, to feel what's right and what's wrong, to feel other people and, and see things that maybe other people aren't seeing yet in the sense of being able to be a little bit more compassionate towards others versus being too judgmental, for example. And let's go to the crown chakra. That's a seventh. It's our source of enlightenment and spiritual connection to ourselves, our higher selves, to others, and ultimately to the divine source. Um, people that might have blockages in the crown chakra might see things like chronic headaches, which also can be tied to the sixth chakra, chronic headaches, um, any problems of of the psycho psychological problems, maybe psychosis can be linked to that seventh chakra and also spiritual skepticism. And, you know, that is, that shows an imbalance in that seventh chakra. Just, you know, I'll see this in a lot of people who say that they are atheists, that spiritual skepticism and cynicism, but then in the excessive side, we see people that believe that they're spiritually elite. That's also an imbalance of the seventh chakra. Mm, great. Well, thank you for taking us through all of those. I think that's going to be really helpful for our listeners. Um, and and one of the things uh, that I wanted to ask you too is, it almost seems like our chakras, even if they come into balance, we go out into life and we experience so many different things throughout the day um, mm -hmm. that it almost feels like you'd have to cleanse the chakra system, uh, you know, morning and night in order to keep them in balance. Is that is that true, or is there a way to really try to keep the energy centers or the energy very clear and balanced for long periods of time? And if so, how do you achieve that? <laughs> that's a really good question. Um, it is definitely a daily practice, and that's why I teach and preach that meditation is so incredibly important. Um, if you don't have a meditation practice yet, start somehow. There are plenty of apps that can do guided meditations for you. You don't even have to do it yourself. You can just listen. Um, so yeah, meditation is such an important practice. And in that meditation, and I do guided meditations in the book. Yes. On the on the audio book, I have a separate track. It's a bonus track just with the guided meditations that take you through each of the chakras. And you can do that, but also just do a body scan before your meditation each day in the morning and the evening meditation. Um, do a body scan and just see where you are, see where you're holding on to tension and see which chakras seem to just not be well. And so, yeah, it's really important. And this is not in the book, but I'm also an angel reader and I teach 
clients that they need to clear their energy on a daily basis. And you can ask your angel guides to do this for you. You can ask the archangels to do it for you. Um, you can also do it for yourself with energy clearing. Just think of your hand being like a sword and cutting away any of the negativity and any of the negative energy just by waving your hand over your body and over the chakras. And that can just cut away any of the negative ties of energy that you might have to someone that you had an argument with, a disagreement with, or um, someone that might be carrying negative energy that just comes into your energy field. So your hands are a very powerful tool, even though you may not be aware of it. Um, so you can just do this for yourself as well. And those are some of the ways as far as on the long term, I think definitely going to see an energy healer and doing a Reiki session or doing a massage session with someone who is versed in energetic healing is a great way to do maintenance. That's a wonderful way to do maintenance. Um, but as far as a daily practice, I think nothing replaces that daily practice of meditation and just clearing and just being able to stay open to any, anything negative. And it could just be like, you just had a binge and went to McDonald's and ate a bunch of bad food, (laughs) you know? So it's like, you got to clear yourself of that by eating pure, you know, eating pure foods the you know, the following day or something. So, yeah. And can you also talk about the connection of the colors with the chakras? And I've always been curious to know, um, like, you know, in the history of the chakra system in, in this tradition here, did somebody actually see these colors or were colors just given so people had a visual? Um, like, how, how do we know that really the root chakra is red, red and yeah. you know, the heart is green? What are your thoughts about that? So I, um, I am not someone who can see colors, but I do know healers that do see colors. And it was taught to me that yes, in fact, those that see auras and colors in the auras do see these colors that correspond to these chakras. So yes, there were that those were clairvoyance or Originally, I don't know, 2,000, 3,000 years ago, (laughs) people who were seeing auras and seeing these colors within the chakras, and that's why they correspond to those. Right. Okay. All right. Great. Well, I, I, I always wondered about that. I'm mm-hmm. like, is it, is it just because, you know, somebody once said, or was it truly actually seen? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was always curious about that, mm-hmm. that connection and correlation there. Um, and so the other thing too, as we're kind of coming to a close and wrapping up a little bit, I wanted um, people, if they are at their computers, to also find your website because you have some great stuff on here. I really enjoyed reading some of the articles on your blog. Um, so could you let our audience know where they can find you? Sure. So you can go to michellefondenauthor.com and I have a lot more stuff on my YouTube channel as far as videos go. And so on my YouTube channel, it's also Michelle Fondon author. And I typically um, post at least four videos weekly. Wow. YouTube channel. Yeah. (laughs) Busy, busy. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And I I noticed in your blog too, um, and you wrote a book about it, but um, I I thought maybe for maybe the last 10 minutes or so, we could Mm -hmm. talk a little bit about um, addiction. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, cause you write about a lot about alcoholism and, and things of that sort. So, uh, would yeah. you like to share a little bit more about that? 
Sure. So yeah, I wrote a book called Help. I think my loved one is an alcoholic, a survival guide for lovers, family, and friends. And the reason why I wrote that book was because um, five years ago, I fell in love with someone who was an alcoholic and I had no idea. And I didn't even know what alcoholism was. Like I knew it intellectually in textbook. And then you see people and you're like, oh, they're probably an alcoholic. But then if you don't have it in your life on a daily basis, you really don't give it a second thought. And there's a lot of misconceptions about addiction. And even today, there's like a huge stigma surrounding alcoholism and addiction. And so for me, being someone who was in a relationship with an alcoholic and I, I was blindsided because I didn't realize until months later and I, and I'm still with this person. I still love this person. We're not living together now, but he's a very important person in my life. And it was like me finding information that was not false and me finding information that wasn't, um, just saying that this person who's an alcoholic or addict is a bad person and you just need to like stay away from them and stop enabling them. And I didn't even know what enabling meant, (laughs) but it's funny because everything happens for a reason. And even if you didn't grow up in an alcoholic household or in a, a household with parents who are drug addicts, like enabling behavior can happen even with a dysfunctional parent or dysfunctional parents, plural. And, and I grew up in a household with dysfunctional parents. And so you learn these types of behaviors, which I also refer to as people pleasing. So I really wrote the book from the perspective of a person who loves an alcoholic, or it could be your brother, sister, father, mother, best friend, because a lot of times your friends can have an alcohol problem and you don't really even know it. You're just like, why do they get so drunk every time we go out? And that's probably because they have a drinking problem and, you know, that's crossed over into alcoholism. And so I really wrote it to have love and compassion for the alcoholic and to help people realize that it is a disease. It is something that they cannot control. It's, it's something that's so bizarre. It is the most, and that's why it fascinated me because I do study disease and wellness is that it is by far the most bizarre disease that exist because it's so multi-layered. It's, it's physical, emotional, spiritual relationships, societal. It's, it's this crazy disease that masks itself so that when the person isn't drinking or isn't drugging, that they seem like a normal person. And then when they're off on the deep end, they just, they're a completely other person. Mm. And maybe uh, we could talk a little bit about the whole concept of alcoholism being a disease, because I know that there Mm. are some, um, there's kind of arguments to both sides of that where some people would say it's, it really isn't a disease and you can't quite compare it to cancer or diabetes. Um, and that there seems to be more of a choice with somebody that's struggling with addiction, whereas Mm -hmm. in other, maybe some other chronic diseases that the person doesn't necessarily have a choice. Uh, They have a choice to heal. Of course, I think we all do, but Mm -hmm. maybe there's not so much of a choice, uh, with that disease as it is to addiction. Okay. So in history, I think it's important that we go back in history and start in, and understand that back in the 1800s, alcoholism was absolutely classified as a disease. And the, like alcoholism has baffled people for centuries and not understanding what to do with people 
who were alcoholics and addicts and they just didn't know what to do with them. And they, they tried so many different things and it really wasn't until AA was established in, I think it was 1934. It was in the early, it was in the early 1930s that AA was established that for the first time in history, people were able to heal from alcohol addiction. And I can tell you right now that I've interviewed so many alcoholics in recovery for my book. I've attended over a hundred, probably close to 200 AA meetings. I've talked to numerous alcoholics in recovery and alcoholics who are not in recovery. And I will tell you right now that none of these people would choose to be in the state that they're being in out of free will choice. They absolutely would not choose it. That maybe getting into the drinking in the first place was a, it was a coping mechanism. And the point at which the line crossed over from heavy drinking or drinking of choice into alcoholism, once they cross that line, they can't go back. It's their, their brains are completely chemically changed that in their scientific proof that their brain is actually chemically changed, that they can't drink responsibly. If, you know, just put that in terms of that people can understand that once they take that first drink, it becomes an obsession and the brain, the brain craves alcohol, like it craves water and food for survival. And actually when it gets into the latter stages of alcoholism, the brain tells the person you need alcohol before you need food. So often you will see people starving themselves to death and just drinking. If they have the money to drink, they'll drink and they won't eat because the brain somehow tricks them into believing that it's the alcohol they need and not food. So I've seen the tragedy of addiction. I've seen addicts on both sides of the spectrum and none of them would actually consciously choose this. But wouldn't you also say that there is an active, they, when they meet sobriety, there is an, they are actively choosing to, um, try not to pick up the drug or to pick up the drink? Yes. So I, (laughs) yes, but that's only after the body is detoxed for the most part. So because the brain is so incredibly, um, altered and it's mostly the prefrontal cortex. So if you know anything about, um, brain development, the prefrontal cortex is the last part of the brain that's developed in human development. Um, it's usually not fully developed till about age 30. And that is our center of, for many other things, but it's our center of judgment. It's our center of being able to understand what's right and what's wrong and to choose a higher choice, a choice that's for the greater good, a choice that's for our better good. And what happens is alcohol actually attacks the prefrontal cortex and shrinks that part of the brain faster than any anything else. And so what happens is a lot of times people that go into recovery have been drinking since well before age 30 and drinking heavily alcoholically. So their prefrontal cortex is totally toast. The good thing is when they stop drinking and they're detoxed, um, the prefrontal cortex actually starts to heal, but it takes up to three years to heal. So yes, they're making the choice once they're in a program like AA or once they've been through rehab and they're continuing with you know, 12 step meetings. Um, it's not by 
I believe wholeheartedly through what I've seen is that it's not by sheer willpower that they're doing this. It's a higher power because the long-term addicts in recovery that I've spoken to, even if they were atheists before recovery, 100% of them said that their recovery is only due to their spiritual connection and that through their spiritual connection, their connection to their higher self and to their higher power and the groups, they consider, a lot of them consider their groups to be, their AA groups or NA groups, to be their higher power as well. It's through the power of the groups and the power of the higher power that they're able to abstain on a day-to-day basis as their brain is healing. And once the brain is healed, as long as they don't pick up a drug or take a drink, they can abstain. But as soon as they go back to that drug or that drink, a lot of times they will go exactly back to the starting point at which they stopped. Okay. And from a spiritual um, kind of aspect, when you think mm-hmm. about how much addiction just runs rampant in, in our culture, um, you know, to me, it seems that alcoholism, drug addiction, it's a bit of a challenge um, for the spirit because we are in a physical body and it almost Mm -hmm. feels like addiction can create people to be very earthbound and connected to the physical. Mm -hmm. Yet, like you were just saying, many people heal through really reconnecting with their spirit and the higher power. Yeah. But it's funny that you say both because yes, unfortunately, alcohol and drug addiction take us back to this this matter. Yeah. So matter versus not being spiritual, but at its origin, what does, what does alcohol and drugs give us? It gives us an instant connection to the boundless. It gives us instant connection to the divine because, but in an artificial way, I'm not saying it's a good way. It's an artificial way, but what, what most addicts are seeking is that ultimate perfection, that euphoric perfection that you would get, for example, if you were to meditate, every day for two weeks. And then all of a sudden you feel this euphoria because you're feeling that spiritual connection. So it's not for lack of craving that spiritual connection. A lot of times it's because they want to escape this world to have that spiritual connection. And that's why they, they move toward, but it create, it does create a karmic debt that puts you deeper into the pit of the physical world, because when you try to artificially move into spirituality through drugs and alcohol, you fall deeper into that pit, if you will. So it is, it's a really very bizarre dynamic, but I have not seen an addict in long-term recovery, long-term I'm talking about. And when we speak about recovery, guys, we're speaking about changing personalities, changing character, changing lifestyle, changing everything. We're not talking about being a dry drunk or like a dry drug, you know, a person who is addicted to drugs. Um, when you have that personal transformation, then you're in recovery, but I've never seen someone in long-term recovery for as long as I've been studying this, um, that hasn't had that spiritual awakening and, and they haven't surrendered to their higher power. I haven't seen it. I have not yet seen it. Mm-hmm. Well, good. I'm glad we could have a small little talk about that because I know that <laughs> that you mentioned when we were talking about the sacral chakra that that's where addiction um, tends to lie within the second chakra. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. All right. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for taking time to speak with me and to You're be a guest welcome. on the Path 11 podcast. Thank um, you for having me. 
Yeah, definitely enjoyed your book and I wish you a lot of luck. Oh, thanks so much. If you want more information about our films, visit our website, path11productions.com, to purchase DVDs or to rent and stream each film. You can also find our trilogy of films on iTunes, Amazon Prime, and Gaia.com. You can still use our smartphone app for both Android and iPhones. Just search for Path 11 in the Google Play App Store, or if on an iPhone, look for Path 11 in the iOS App Store. Catch you next time. Thank you.